So welcome to this Ethics at Noon. As you can see, free speech at Santa Clara University should the campus policy change. I'm David DeCoste, the Director of Campus Ethics Programs at the Markle Center for Applied Ethics. Uh, this issue has been, uh, I think, on the minds of many on campus, uh, certainly in the last couple of years with sort of very difficult uh, occasions coming up um, um, throughout the last couple of years. Uh, it's also been a focus of the Ethics Center in the last year to look at the theme of free speech and civil discourse throughout the year. So this is in ways our culminating event of that year-long project. We've uploaded a lot of great material from earlier events to our website, so we invite you to take a look there and find just some outstanding content that can fill out this theme, content drawing on previous presentations throughout the year. But we are so glad and really so grateful to Professor Nelson uh, for being willing to take on this theme as a way to close the year, as a way to sort of bring any larger meta-reflections really down home to us here at the university to think through these things and so to speak in kind of real time right here. Um, Professor Nelson, I know, is well known to many of you, but perhaps you don't know in other ways. He has been an incredible supporter and friend of the Ethics Center for many years um, and, uh, and helping us with teaching faculty um, about in many disciplines, how to integrate ethics into their work, giving many papers over the years for us, and really um, struck me um, sort of in advance of the presentation today thinking that it's very characteristic to me of Professor Nelson that he would be willing to take on a really tough topic like this that gets down to some very sensitive, tough um, stuff for all of us. So um, we're so grateful for his support of the center and affiliation over the years and so grateful for Professor Nelson taking on this topic today. Professor Nelson. Thank you, David. Uh, first of all, this is a big topic. You cannot possibly expect me to say everything that needs to be said about this today. And also, if I want to leave some time for your questions and comments. Uh, so I'm going to do the best I can. It's kind of going to be an overview. Uh, but there will be many things that, again, that could be said and could have been addressed that won't. Uh, number two is, yes, you can make fun of my PowerPoints. That's okay with me. Uh, I'm terrible at it. But I thought it would be good for us to see some of the language, because uh, I think some of the language here is very important. Uh, and number three, when I get to making some comments about uh, the policies here at Santa Clara, uh, know that I am just going by the texts that are publicly available. I am not making any claims about how this may actually be enforced on the ground. Uh, but uh, being trained in both philosophy and law, uh, yes, I know that that's kind of a, being an ethicist and a lawyer is a contradiction in terms for some of you. Uh, but. Uh, I have to go with the plain language of the policy. So it might very well be that someone here, like Jeannie Rosemary, said, well, we never would do that. Well, okay, Jeannie, that might be the case. But uh, I'm to be talking about what the language says and what, and, and what could happen. So if I get any facts wrong, uh, those who know better than me can, uh, can correct it. Uh, in a feeble effort to show that I'm a real philosopher, here's a picture that shows that I've been to the Pro-Am philosopher section. And by the way, the pro is to the left, the amateur is to the right. And uh, here's a random picture of my daughter, Rebecca, six years ago after she received her admission to Santa Clara. Uh, as, as in all uh, talks given at a Jesuit Catholic University, uh, it'll be in three parts. Uh, since the 
since the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost are the three men I admire most. Uh, first, I'm going to talk about the value of free speech on campus generally. Second, I'm going to give uh, some, I think, quite important legal context and add some notes on the specific subject of hate speech. And three, I will close with some comments on Santa Clara's free speech policies. And I do want to uh, note right off the top that what I'm presenting to you, and I will, when I'm citing them directly, I will give you the, the reference. Uh, uh, Professor Chemerinsky's and Mr. Uh, Professor Gilman's book, Free Speech on Campus, which just came out from Yale this last summer, is a very important and actually quite short book on this subject that I would urge you to read if you want to get into this more in depth. According to Chemerinsky et al., uh, many centuries higher education was, practically in the West, was not founded on free thought, but rather on indoctrination, largely religious and Christian in nature. I don't think that's any surprise. Uh, they like to quote the, uh, the Royal Society here, founded in 1663 with their famous, and of course throwing Latin around is always impressive, uh, Nullius in Verba, which they translate as take nobody's word for it, or nobody tells us, or nobody tells me, how to think. And I think one of the important values behind free speech is that we are able to push into other people's claims, we are able to disagree with them. We are able to tell them that what they, what they are saying we, that might very well be immoral, but we can still defend their right to express it. And as my comments go on uh, this afternoon, know that I, I might very well morally disapprove <coughs> of certain kinds of speech and expression. At, and at the same time, think that individuals who want to make those utterances should not be punished <coughs> for doing so. Uh, there, is, there is a difference there. Again, Chemerinsky claims that few modern inventions have been more important for promoting human freedom and social progress than the university, which is organized around the search for knowledge based on free inquiry and debate rooted in reason and experimentation, and I would add evidence. Uh, certainly, reason and evidence are under attack these days. And I think the university should be pushing uh, those values to the forefront. I, I thought this is kind of an interesting example. Uh, in 1900, Jane Stanford, yes, forced the firing of Professor Edward Ross for his support of unions and other such radical ideas. Uh, William Harper, the first president of the University of Chicago, responded, the principle of complete freedom of speech on all subjects has from the beginning been regarded as fundamental to the University of Chicago. And some of you might recall seeing in the press a couple of years ago uh, where the administration at the University of Chicago sent out a letter to all incoming first years uh, basically saying we still believe in the freedom of speech, uh, we're reluctant to get into all these arguments about trigger warnings and so on, and we want you to know that if you come to the University of Chicago, you have to expect to hear some speech that you might find uncomfortable, you might find troubling, and that you might very well disagree with. But uh, do not expect to be shielded from it, and do not expect us to censor those who uh, say things that make you feel uncomfortable. Uh, and the position of Chemerinsky is, and I, this is certainly open to debate, uh, he and Gilman believe there is no middle ground. Although they do agree that speech can and should be regulated in professional settings. 
Now, what they mean by professional settings would be, for example, this event. If one of you decides to stand up on her chair and start heckling me and uh, throwing one of those little sandwiches at me, uh, that's, not a, that's not free speech. Uh, that's, that's a matter of disrupting an event, uh, and people like that uh, can be... Uh, can be sanctioned, can be told to stop, and if they don't stop, I guess, I don't know, that you, you call the whole event off or call in campus safety and they pick them up and carry them out. Uh, so if you're going to do that, now's your time. That's your cue. <laughs> no? Okay. Uh, they also mean professional settings as in the classroom, and that clearly uh, students do not have some kind of absolute free speech rights to, to disrupt a classroom. Similarly, professors don't have academic freedom or free speech rights to talk about something utterly unrelated to the subject they're teaching. So if I'm teaching my course on bioethics and the law, and I want to start talking about uh, how, how bad it is for the Israelis to be shooting at the Palestinians, uh, not appropriate. And again, I cannot say that I have the right to say that because of academic freedom or freedom of speech. And certainly Chemerinsky and Gilman strongly believe in what they write here. History demonstrates that there is no way to define an unacceptable, punishment-worthy idea without putting genuinely important new thinking and societal or any other kind of critique at risk. And you might say this is the foundation of their position. The premise that the academic community should be a safe space for those who consider themselves harmed when they are exposed to views with which they disagree ought to be rejected. Universities then should be spaces where all ideas can be expressed and challenged. And as I just mentioned, uh, their view is advocating censorship or punishment of harmful or offensive speech inevitably leads groups to try to silence people merely because they have different beliefs. See, I, I, I can't do PowerPoint well enough to even put two different slideshows together. So now I'd like to move on to part two, which is getting into the legal context. Oh, that was not smart of me. Uh, that does slideshow. And again, part two will have three parts. <laughs> hey, I was... I was taught by the School Sisters of Notre Dame. Uh, first, I want to get into some detail about the Leonard Law because the Leonard Law changes the legal situation with respect to free speech on campus in California a great deal. Uh, second, I want to talk, uh, again, relying largely on Chemerinsky and Gilman, about how the First Amendment ought to play out on campus in California, assuming the application of the Leonard Law. And then I want to say a few things about hate speech. All right, this is subsection A of the Leonard Law, which as you can see there, it's in the Education Code. No private post-secondary educational institution shall make or enforce a rule subjecting a student, and it only applies to students, to disciplinary sanctions solely on the basis of conduct that is speech or other communication that, 
when engaged in outside the campus or facility of a private post-secondary institution, is protected from governmental restriction by the First Amendment to the United States Constitution or Section 2, Article 1 of the California Constitution. So what this essentially means is that it is the law of the state of California that the free speech rights of students here at Santa Clara are basically the same as those that, of students at the University of California at Berkeley or Irvine, or if they want to go to the public parks or on the local sidewalks. In other words, the First Amendment, as it would apply in a public space, applies here on campus at Santa Clara or any other private post-secondary educational institution. And this is another significant part of the Leonard Law. A student enrolled in a private post-secondary institution at the time that the institution has made or enforced any rule in violation of what we just read may commence a civil action to obtain appropriate injunctive and declaratory relief as determined by the court. Upon motion, a court may award attorney's fees in a prevailing plaintiff in a civil action pursuant to this section. So in other words, if a, if, a, if a student or a group of students challenged, notice it allows the challenge even of the existence of a, of a provision of policy that might restrict speech. It's not, they don't necessarily have to have been sanctioned for the violation. This law makes it illegal even to have a rule that you might say violates the First Amendment. But if they do and they prevail, the court may award their attorneys their fees that, of course, makes litigating this much more attractive for lawyers, that they might actually be able to recover their fees, and obviously a group of students here are not, well, in all likelihood, are not going to be able to pass the hat and get enough money to hire a lawyer for an hour even. <laughs> Could be tricky. Uh, so this is a significant, well, uh, actually incentive for lawyers to take on such a case. Uh, and just to be clear, injunctive and declaratory relief, as I'll say in a minute, means that students cannot collect damages from the university for any kind of violation of their free speech rights. But they could get a court order saying, you university have to stop doing that or you may not enforce this rule anymore. Or they, they might get a court declaration that the, the, the policy of a given university is inconsistent with uh, the Leonard Law. Now, there is an exception. This section does not apply to a private post-secondary educational institution that is controlled by a religious organization to the extent that the application of this section would not be consistent with the religious tenets of the organization. So that, of course, raises the question, is Santa Clara exempt under this provision? My own view would be the answer to that is no, it is not. Santa Clara is not controlled by a religious organization. It is controlled by the Board of Trustees uh, as structured by the... Uh, the bylaws of the university. And those trustees are, are not a religious organization. Santa Clara used to be owned and controlled by the Society of Jesus, but that separation was made uh, a good number of years ago. So my own view would be Santa Clara is not exempt from the statute. That does not mean, however, that if there were ever any dispute about 
the applicability and enforcement of the Leonard Law against the university, that the university, it doesn't mean they might not be able to claim they have, the university has free exercise rights that might be implicated by the enforcement of this law. If Hobby Lobby has free exercise rights, uh, then I would think Santa Clara might have those as well. Uh, the section does not authorize prior restraint of student speech. And notice, this section does not prohibit the imposition of discipline for harassment, threats, or intimidation unless constitutionally protected. Well, that's kind of an unnecessary provision. It basically says that uh, exceptions to the First Amendment or speech or expression that is not covered by the First Amendment obviously is not covered by this law either. Now, what do we know about the Leonard Law? Uh, not much. There's, there are very, very few reported cases about it, and they are not very illuminating. Uh, second, we do know what I just mentioned. There's no damages. Uh, there's only uh, court orders, basically, that are available. Three, any student suing must actually be enrolled at the time of the litigation. There was a case of a shock jock at, of all places, Occidental College, uh, who didn't get around to suing until after he graduated and his suit was bumped because he was no longer enrolled. So only enrolled students can enforce this. Now the most famous case that was decided under Leonard Law was Corey versus Stanford University back in 1995, which was only three years after this law was enacted. And in that litigation, which was here in Santa Clara County Superior Court, uh, Stanford University speech code was struck down as violative of the Leonard Law and the First Amendment. And Stanford attacked the constitutionality of the Leonard Law, saying that it inhibited Stanford's own free speech rights, and the court did not accept that argument. And interestingly uh, to me, uh, Stanford University did not appeal. The president, uh, I think it was Gerhard Casper at the time, is that the correct guy? In any event, the president issued a public statement saying, well, we understand, uh, and we don't think it's a good use of resources, and of course he didn't say what was really on their minds is they were afraid to get an appellate opinion that would uphold the trial court. They didn't want to make that a precedent. And as, as you may know, trial court decisions are not precedent. They do not require other trial court judges to come to the same conclusion. Now, had there been a court of appeal decision, or if the California Supreme Court had ruled in favor of the students, then other trial courts in the state would be bound by that result. They are not bound by the result uh, in Corey versus Stanford University. I think it's worthwhile mentioning that the, the Leonard Law is unique in the United States. No other state has a law like this, which means in all other jurisdictions, other than California, uh, private universities have much more control over uh, the speech of their students uh, than they do here in California. Larry, do you know what Corey said? It, was it just a challenge, or did Corey actually say some things that were? Uh, Corey was a law student, and he and some other students uh, sued to strike down the, the speech code at Stanford University, uh, which they claimed was overbroad and vague, and the court upheld that challenge and rejected Stanford's claim that the Leonard Law is an unconstitutional exercise of legislative authority. They, were, they, again, they, they claimed their own free speech, but they also claimed expressive association, and the trial court 
basically bought the argument that the state of California has a compelling interest in protecting free speech on any campus, not just the campuses of public universities, but also <coughs> campuses of private universities. In other words, all institutions of higher education should be held to the same free speech standards. Now, is that conclusion subject to attack? Sure it is, but then almost any legal argument has one that will right, uh, rebut it. Now, yes, Jeannie? Are there any, um, have there been any attempts for other states to adopt a law similar to the Leonard Law? I don't know the answer to that. I do know that there was a bill in the California legislature to basically reaffirm it and maybe even <laughs> toughen it up a bit. But my, to my knowledge, that has not gone through. So no, I really don't, I'm not aware of other states going in the same direction. Now here is a summary of what Chemerinsky and Gilman would say the First Amendment does and does not allow with respect to free speech on campus. So the university cannot censor or punish speech merely because a person or group considers it offensive or even hateful. That is not a sufficient ground. Two, the university can censor or punish speech that meets the legal criteria for harassment, true threats, or other speech unprotected by the First Amendment. Now, you would be surprised, I can't tell you all the elements, there's too many, but actually the California True Threats Statute is actually very specific in what it requires. So if I say, uh, Father Zampelli has offended me recently, and I am going to harm him mm, sometime next year. <coughs> I'm going to cut off his ears and put him on a bulletin board. That does not violate the California criminal statute on true threats. It is too vague. It is too far in the future. It does not satisfy the California statute. Other states have broader statutes that would allow prosecutors. I don't think this is kind of a fantastic example, but... You get my point. If I say I'm going to harm someone in the future, uh, it's just it, under the California law, it just doesn't count. But in any event, true threats are, uh, are prescribable. <coughs> C, not surprisingly, the university can punish destruction of property, just like they could. Uh, with C, they can punish disruption of classes or other campus activities. No right exists to speak in ways that constitute an actual breach of necessary order. Students have a right to have their say, but not at the expense of the rights of others to go about their legitimate business on campus. But restrictions of such speech or behavior must be content neutral and must apply to disruptive behavior regardless of its motivation or viewpoint. So if we had a class here on Jewish studies that was disrupted by a demonstration of Palestinian students calling for sanctions against Israel for bombing in Gaza, and the protesters are punished, the university must also punish the disruption of a women and gender studies class that is discussing feminist advocacy of abortion that is disrupted by a group of Orthodox Catholic students. Or if, it, if uh, one of my classes on bioethics is disrupted by students affiliated with the Cardinal Newman Society, the university should issue sanctions them in the same way they would for any other disruption. They can't let some disruptions go because they don't like What's being said, and they're happy to have the disruption, and yet they get to pick when they when they, when they will or will not enforce it. Uh, and if you wonder why Professor Nelson is talking about the Cardinal Newman Society, 
this is a conservative Catholic organization based on the East Coast that has publicly called for me to be fired on several occasions. They have published articles about me. Uh, they're basically the watchdog of faculty at Catholic universities, and they find some of my publications, some of my views to be uh, not orthodox and not appropriate for someone teaching at a Catholic university. Uh, they've also sent letters to both uh, Paul Locatelli of Happy Memory and Father Eng calling for me to be fired, and so far I've survived. <laughs> Universities can't prevent protesters from having a meaningful opportunity to get their views across in a meaningful way. Now, the way I would interpret this is... Uh, this could, for example, if... Uh, if a private university uh, basically had no bulletin boards anywhere on campus where anyone could post anything without undergoing review by someone, I think that might be depriving people of a meaningful opportunity to get their views out there in print. Uh, universities can impose reasonable time, place, and manner restrictions on speech or protests for the purpose of preventing disruption of the normal operation of the campus. For example, Santa Clara has a rule saying, we don't want you exercising your free speech rights around the mission church. It's an operating Catholic church. People are praying and going to confession and mass and stay away from there. I would think that that would be uh, probably held to be a reasonable place restriction. Now, of course, they do have to be reasonable. If the answer is, no, there's no time when you can talk, there's no place where we're going to let you talk, and we don't care what manner you, you can't talk, well, obviously, that's not, that's not going to fly. And if you go to the Santa Clara website, you will, there, there used to be, right, an, a, what was it called? The, uh, the free speech zone was basically the plaza in front of Benson, right? Uh, I believe that's no longer like, the designated area, although, unfortunately, it's still on the server. Uh, if that were the case here, the students could only express themselves in that area, I think that would fall under the First Amendment and under the Leonard Law. Uh, the university cannot impose content-based speech restrictions in residence halls. They can impose content-neutral restriction in halls designed to ensure a supportive living environment. This is what's often called the captive audience problem. Uh, in other words, the people living in a residence hall are stuck with the, where they are, and there are certain kinds of speech that they simply don't have to put up with. Uh, that would not apply to the CF store decks, however, as ugly as they might be sometimes, although not in my residence hall. They're all great there. Uh, finally, universities can't, or is this finally? Maybe i got one more. Can't censor or punish some but not others for putting up handbills, writing messages in chalk, or engaging in similar acts of expression, but can create content-neutral regulations governing on-campus expression. Cannot engage in content-based discrimination against faculty members, students, or other speakers or writers who seek to express themselves outside the professional educational context, but can inside this context based on fair professional standards or best practices. We've talked about that. Uh, faculty may provide warnings before presenting material that might be offensive or upsetting, but colleges should not require such. Now, I think that's more of a moral argument than it is a legal one. Uh, universities can't prohibit faculty or students from using words that some consider to constitute microaggressions, but they certainly can do education about them. And I believe this is finally, can ensure that all student organizations, as a condition for recognition or eligibility for funding, be open to all students, but cannot deny recognition or impose sanctions 
on a student organization for views expressed by its members or speakers. This comes out of the Christian Legal Society case against Hastings here in California some years ago. Hate speech. A, a rough definition of hate speech would be expression that degrades, is offensive, is demeaning to a group of people because of race, color, national or ethnic origin, sex, sexual orientation, or other, you might say, stereotypical social categories. Uh, what's, what is the argument that hate speech is objectionable? Uh, it causes psychological and even physical harm, you might say, by its very utterance. Uh, second, it's an affront to the dignity of those who are subjected to it. Third, it is a form of wrongful discrimination and ought to be treated as a form of wrongful discrimination. And uh, finally, it's an assault that should be prevented and punished. However, there is no exception under the First Amendment for hate speech. Under the First Amendment, there is no such thing as a false idea. Uh, whether that's racism, uh, nationalism, sexism, uh, the First Amendment does not draw those, does not permit distinctions to be drawn of that nature. Uh, Chemerinsky and Gilman point out that by the early 1990s, over 350 universities had hate speech codes. They say many of these were challenged in court, and all those challenged were found unconstitutional. My assumption is, even though they don't say so, and they ought to have, that these would all be public institutions. All the examples they give are of public institutions. And if you want to see some interesting examples of this, again, I, I'd urge you to take a look at their book. Uh, again, as I, as, I, as I suggested earlier, their main concern is that these so-called hate speech codes are in general overbroad and vague. And vague. That they are, they, their language is so elastic, you might say, that any controversial or critical comment could be sanctioned under them, uh, depending if some people, again, found them to be degrading, found them to be offensive, found them to be, and so on. Uh, now, Chemerinsky and Gilman believe there are strong reasons not to censor and punish those using hate speech. Uh, one, again, as we've been talking about, they think it's inevitably vague and overbroad. This then chills people's expression. They're afraid to speak their mind because they're afraid of getting in trouble. Uh, and related to that is people are uh, afraid of uh, an arbitrary sanction being levied against them, again, because their particular kind of speech is unpopular. Second, uh, Chemerinsky and Gilman argue the risk of punishing based on political point of view, uh, is very prevalent here because terms like insulting, stigmatizing, and demeaning are politically charged as well as, you might say, morally charged. Third, they're often used to punish the speech of minorities who are not the intended targets of hate speech regulation but are supposed to be the beneficiaries of it. Uh, and finally, protecting hate speech is necessary because the alternative, allowing authorities to punish the speech they don't like, creates even more harm. Did I just go the wrong direction? Now finally, should the campus free speech policy change? For faculty, I think the answer would be no, although the term free speech does not appear in the faculty handbook, by the way. Uh, this, this provision does. The university is dedicated to an uncompromising standard of academic excellence and an unwavering commitment to academic freedom freedom of inquiry, and freedom of expression in the search for truth. 
faculty handbook also uh, contains this statement, the common good depends upon the free search for truth and its free exposition. Sentiments which I certainly agree with right. myself. Yes? Do you make a distinction between free speech and academic freedom? Well, in, in, in which context? You said that the faculty handbook doesn't it doesn't use the term free speech, but it does talk. It talks a lot about academic freedom, right. and in in yes, in in that case, my ability to speak my mind or publish my mind would be protected. You might say by, by academic freedom. Now, how academic freedom applies to students, I think, is more problematic. Now, for students, uh, the university's sole purpose is and shall remain that of an institution of higher learning providing an education to its students, which includes encouraging the free exchange of ideas for the purpose of developing knowledge and pursuing truth. The university recognizes and supports the rights of free expression. A good statement uh, in the student handbook. Uh, now, are there any arguments why, yes, the campus free speech policy should change for students? Here's one example. Uh, again, according to the student handbook, uh, students who want to uh, uh, conduct a free speech, uh, engage in free speech, must file what's called an expressive activity management form. Uh, this form must be filed 72 hours prior to the event. One could make the argument that this kind of outlaws any kind of spontaneous free speech uh, uh, event, and maybe that's too restrictive. Uh, second, the, the form and the free speech policy uh, requires a sponsoring student organization, which, again, as I told you at the beginning, taking it by its literal terms would mean that an informal group of students who are not part of an organization, they say, we want to speak out on whatever it might be. Uh, they couldn't go through the policy because they're not an organization. And that strikes me as uh, not right. Uh, the Vice Provost for Student Life is responsible for reviewing requests to ensure compliance with time, place, and manner regulations. That by itself obviously is not problematic. But again, the question is, will uh, the lack of content neutrality possibly filter into compliance with time, place, or manner regulations? Now, here's another provision of the student handbook. The following acts may subject students to disciplinary action. Hazing, harassing, threatening, bullying, degrading language can subject students to sanction. It's the degrading part of this that I think is the most problematic. Uh, and how is that degradation to be determined? Uh, if a student says, I feel degraded by these kind of comments, is that sufficient? Uh, and and this, is the, this is the basic problem that Chemerinsky and Gilman talk about with respect to hate speech codes, is that it has a term like that. Now, hazing, harassing, threatening, bullying, these, stalking, uh, these might very well be legitimate reasons for restricting speech. Uh, degrading language, I think, is more problematic. Uh, now, the, most of us are familiar with the, the My Borders, My Choice poster. Uh, if this poster, which I can show you a picture if I can pull it up here, uh, if it is banned or students posting it are sanctioned because it contains objectionable content, I would say the principle of content neutrality has been banned. Uh, because I think its content is 
uh, protected by the First Amendment. And let me just quickly bring it up so that we know what we're talking about here. I believe I can find it here in my... What? So this is the, this is my understanding of what the, the poster was. And it, again, it is my understanding that this poster was considered both a, an example of unacceptable bias in expression and also violated the, the campus's posting policy. Uh, I would have to say, based on content, that as objectionable as this poster might be, and I've got problems with it too, I, I would have to conclude that it is protected by, uh, I think, by, by free speech. Okay, let me get back. No, not the beginning. The placement of printed materials on bulletin boards inside academic or administrative buildings is subject to the approval of the office with administrative jurisdiction over the area. A possible problem with this standard is that there is no standard for disapproval given, which could leave it up to, so therefore it's not content neutral, and then you've got the risk of arbitrary enforcement by whoever happened to be the, uh, uh, the person involved uh, with that particular building. I do have another story that I could tell about free speech, but I'm going to let it go in the interest of time. But you can ask me about it if you want. And I thank you for your kind attention. Thank you so much, Mr. Nelson. So we've got some time for questions and comments. I do want to say, if you could please keep them brief and to the point so we can get as many people in the mix as possible. And we've got a microphone. Monica's got one, so put up your hand. Monica, we can start with Robert right behind you. So uh, what's the story, please? Uh, I believe it was last year. It might have been the year before. There, there were a group of students who had, uh, they're in the area between Benson and the library. They had a big display that was critical of Planned Parenthood. And it was trying to make the argument that Planned Parenthood should be defunded. There are other clinics that take their place. It, as I read their material, they didn't say, and it's because they do abortions that were against them. It was focused on other, other matters. A, a small group of students whom I talked to later apparently were, let's say, loitering in this same area. And when a student would talk to the people opposed to Planned Parenthood, they would approach some of these students and say, uh, by the way, we're students here. We, we've got another point of view. Can we talk about it? And it is my understanding from these students, and I, with all respect to you guys, I sometimes y'all don't tell me the full story, but <laughs> or the right story, not intentionally. But in it, uh, I then talked to these students as they were standing on the sidewalk uh, at the intersection of the Alameda and Market, and. Uh, I started talking, and they said, oh, yeah, campus safety came and told us we had to leave. We, we could not stand there and give a different point of view about Planned Parenthood. But they, they were removed to the sidewalk some distance away. Now, if that's true, I think that's a – and they told me that – they were told, no, this organization – I don't know who they were. I, I don't know. But they had reserved this area and that no other students could be there, you might say, to give a different point of view. Now, of course, if they're harassing people, who, 
either they're harassing the anti-Planned Parenthood people, that's objectionable. But again, that's content neutral. They can't, they can't disrupt anyone's, right? We've got some pretty controversial stuff out there right now, same area, right? And if someone's going there, you know, knocking it down or telling people to go away or yelling, well, that's, that's unacceptable behavior. But uh, uh, so uh, I found that, I think that's not acceptable. If, if students are not being disruptive, uh, or I, I was kind of wondering what would they would do if I stood out there and said, by the way, I think these folks are giving, they're not giving you the whole truth about Planned Parenthood. Let me tell you more about Planned Parenthood. Would campus safety escort me to the sidewalk? Well, I'm not subject to the student conduct code. Uh, so that's just, that's the story, basically. And uh, those students were unhappy with th them being moved off campus. And again, given what they told me, I think they had been constantly. Uh, first of all, thank you. Uh, so my question's relating to the idea of harassment and true threats. So with a response to the flyer that was put up as using a good example, I know some students were targeted based off their affiliations with certain clubs on campus uh, with like falsified campus safety reports and things like that. Would that quantify as harassment? How would you define it? And if so, what the university should do? What should the university do to protect students from things like that and also ensure free speech on campus? I'm not familiar with the examples that you're talking about, but if if uh, if students are, like for example, you said filing false reports about them in an effort to get them into some kind of hot water, well, that that that's objectionable behavior. That has nothing to do with free speech, in my view, uh, and th that should not be protected by yeah, by by the free speech policy. Was there something else that you? Uh, just how would you define the idea of harassment and true threats? Well, uh, I guess that's another question. We're going to have a problem here in terms of if, what, if, if there's a legal notion of harassment, like sexual harassment, for example, and that's a, that's a pretty fairly well-defined legal category. Uh, I would think the university would have to, uh, I think, make a, a serious moral inquiry as to what kind of behavior is so dis is, is so uh, objectionable apart from content. Like if someone comes up to me and says, well, I, let's see, an Orthodox Catholic student decide, wants to argue with me. Well, I think she's got a right to argue with me about what I'm doing and what I think and why am I, I call myself a Catholic, yeah, I do. And Now, I don't sit there and listen to her, but I, I think she has every right to ask me those questions. Now, if she starts coming to my office every day and starts yelling at me and posts stuff on the door of my office or hangs a noose there, or, which actually is against California law, by the way, uh, that's a different matter. But you're right, these terms can be tricky to define and then apply in an even-handed and fair way. But I think there is room for the university to do so. So I, I want to ask about hate speech. Uh, Larry, I happen to agree very much with the approach that you're presenting here. Hate speech, though, seems to represent a challenge that often happens uh, when our constitutionally generated freedoms, which were established long ago, conflict with new findings. So the the hate speech objections are this can actually do psychological harm. Uh, you know, there, there are plenty of those objections. So I just want to make sure what I'm hearing you say is that 
the importance of the First Amendment protections are so great that we have to allow the evil of hate speech, the, the terrible things that it can do, because there are greater concerns with political social expression. Is that, am that's I summing it up right? Well, that's sort of the Chemerinsky and Gilman view. How about, how uh, which about I'm you? pretty sympathetic okay. to myself. Uh, again, that doesn't mean that private action can't be taken against these individuals. Uh, people cannot associate with them. People can argue with them. People can say, I, I, don't, I don't want you to be my friend anymore, or anything like that. Uh, but I'm, I'm afraid that uh, we have to put up with uh, some of that kind of expression. Uh, now, if that starts blending into threatening behavior, right? That's that's a different matter. But if it's just 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 speech, I think that's far more problematic. For me. Uh, I have two questions from you. Uh, first question is that, like, uh, about the border wall poster, the "My Borders, My Thing." People told that it was an expression of hate speech. Using that similar context, there's a bulletin board in Mick Walsh uh, Hall dormitory, which uh, says that, which literally says that you should know your whiteness and says that if you're a white person, if, if you're a male, you're privileged. Uh, I think personally that is racist against white people. Nobody should be judged on the basis of their skin color. Do you think that is an expression of hate speech? It could certainly be interpreted as that. Do I think that's still a matter of expression that ought to be allowed? Sorry? That you're talking about, about, about speech that's, that's well, critical of or demeaning of or offensive to white people? Yeah, but uh, wouldn't you consider that hate speech because it is a degrading language attacking the humanity because of their skin color? Yes. I think it can work both ways. Okay. But I still think it should be protected speech. Yeah, because uh, in the similar context, my borders, my choice is a should be protected speech, but it was considered hate speech by some members of the university. Yes, that's my understanding. I, I can understand how they would be offended and bothered by that. Okay. Again, I'm not defending that particular form of expression. No, my, my point is that if the university was defending if my point is that if the university is defending that bulletin board, it should have like allowed that my borders, my choice poster to be there too. Uh, but my borders, my choice poster was put there illegally, uh, which violated the campus posting policy. Well, yeah, let, let's let's make a distinction between an objection to it on the basis that it's a a hate speech event or expression, versus whether it vo violates a legitimate uh, posting policy. Assuming it doesn't. Th there's a distinction there to me. Yeah. I get your idea, like it violated the campus posting policy, uh, but assuming it did not, it was actually considered as hate speech, and as Father told it was Texas. Okay, my, my view is that that poster, in terms of its content, should be protected by free speech on campus. Okay. Putting aside the question of whether it's properly posted or not. Yeah. Assuming that it was properly posted, okay. I think it has to be tolerated. And, and if people start tearing that down, that should be just as objectionable as people. Unfortunately, in my residence hall at Graham, there are people tearing down our gender-inclusive bathroom uh, signs. And we're doing an experiment now. And I, 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 it, I have to object to that as well. And the university ought to object to that as well. 
so we talked a lot about like, the ability for students to put speech up on campus. So that, My Borders, My Choice flyer, as, long, as well as uh, some of the posters that caused a lot of controversy last year were either suspected to have been or definitely put up uh, by people who came from off campus and are not affiliated with the university. So how does the law change in that context? Assuming the Leonard Law is is constitutional and against with respect to Santa Clara University, that doesn't mean Santa Clara University has to allow any anyone from the public to come onto its campus. So it just applies to people on the campus. Correct, correct. In other words, if there's, let's assume again, good grounds and not just an assumption, but good grounds to believe that these are people who are not university affiliated doing that, it could be objected to on on, on that basis. But if it were if it was me or you or you know, uh, somebody affiliated with the university, uh, then I think the university has to follow content neutrality. Again, unless it becomes a threat or in, 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 a, in a category that's not protected. If it is, I think we have to again put up with expression that we don't like or we think is just wrong or even disgraceful. Okay, thank you. Does that make sense? Why did you choose to conclude um, the ethics at noon conversations with this particular topic of free speech on campus? Yes, to answer that, not me. Oh, sorry about that. Well, uh, it's important to us uh, to both in the course of the year get into deeper content about free speech and civil discourse, and that's where on our website now, on the free speech civil discourse page, we have actually, I was going to say, we've got an audio of Professor Chemerinsky's talk um, that he gave here in January, sort of a wonderful summary of what's in the book, um, as well as a lot of other content up there on many different aspects of the speech and discourse issue here on campus. So, as I said at the start, I think it's great to get into that content, to see the sort of many different sides of this, but it's important to bring these issues home. It's not just issues that other people are dealing with, but ones we're dealing with here. And I think this topic and talk uh, is a great way to do that, to kind of make it more real. So, I'm going to actually pose a question to Professor Nelson. I've been very interested um, reading, um, well, Professor Chemerinsky's work, some work by Professor Robert Post. Um, free First Amendment fellow, uh, Yale Law School. And Post seems to be, he's a very ardent free speech person, but he seems to be trying to make a distinction between inviting speakers to campus like Milo Yiannopoulos um, and Post understanding Yiannopoulos as a bit of a bomb thrower um, who comes to campus as much to create an event of opposition as, as to say kind of important content and Someone say a conservative like is it um, uh, Shapiro? I think can't remember his first name. Ben Shapiro, and I think Post or others make distinctions. Shapiro kind of more content based. So I'm wondering scenario here on campus: a student group invites Yiannopoulos to come to speak at Santa Clara. Um, yeah, I just is the law require is so long the student group follows through all the procedures correctly, fills out the right forms, does all that correctly. Um, does the law then say that person must speak here, more no. or less? No. I say the answer to that is no. Not when it is reasonable to predict that the appearance of someone like that on campus is very likely to generate <laughs> disorder <laughs> or, or worse. 
Uh, obviously, Berkeley has faced this, and look what happened there. Uh, that's a much more complicated subject. Uh, now, we know there was a protest here, for example, several years ago when the President's Speaker's uh, series brought in George Will, and there was a petition going around from some of our faculty if he should not be here. Uh, now, I don't think George Will's appearance on campus, anyone was expecting there going to be a riot or, uh, you know, Antifa was going to show up, whatever. Uh, uh, so I think that's, that would be a different matter. But I think with someone like him who, as you write, not that he literally throws bombs, but wrong, wrong term on my part, definitely. No, but, but I mean, the, it's a metaphorically speaking, and and some of the folks that he deals with are into that kind of disruptive uh, behavior, and I think that's a different matter. And the university, whether public or private, can handle that differently in terms of uh, the ability to provide proper security for property and people. Uh, yeah, I think that's in a different category for me. Wouldn't that be seen as falling under the First Amendment no false idea concept? Well, again, it's not. It, it's if he wants to come and spout his whatever crappy point of view, uh, that's different than the people that come along with him or that that disrupt, damage property. I mean, Berkeley was dealing right with fires and. I mean, it was people getting hurt and beat up, and I mean, it was, it was serious stuff. And uh, while it, while the mere threat of that, well, gee, if uh, I don't know, uh, maybe someone not quite as incendiary as this guy was going to show up, the First Amendment is not going to allow the suppression of speech on on the mere possibility that something could go wrong. Uh, I mean, this this gets gets back to the famous uh, Tinker case where the uh, two kids in, in, in high school in uh, Des Moines, Iowa, I think it was, wore little uh, kind of anti-war buttons. And the school said, oh, can't have that. Uh, people might get excited. There might be a fight. You know, there's patriotic people here. That's not going to work. But where, where there's a track record of someone like this guy and the people who he attracts, and attempt, I think that's, again, that's a different case. see anyone... So you talked about, you listed all the campus policies we have in position in the student handbook and everything, and like the free speech zone which was in front of the Benson Plaza removed. Even still, there are many conservative voices which have been suppressed uh, by student organizations and the university in the past. But considering that, do you think the university policy should change to accommodate that or no? Yes, that would be, I, I, I'm trying to, as Chemerinsky and Gilman argue for, I would argue for content neutrality. And if so-called conservative voices uh, are being suppressed, that's as objectionable as, I don't know, more mainstream or orthodox voices. Uh, so I, if the policies actually are suppressing more conservative, right-wing type points of view, I, I would I would say that's objectionable, and that the university needs to allow them to speak, just like they would anyone else who's all for social justice and loves the Pope. Uh, so, someone, for example, is very critical of the Pope. The university should let him speak. If they're critical of the Catholic Church, if they're critical of the Society of Jesus, we're not letting women in. They should be able to speak. They should not be able to suppress that speech because they don't like its content. And the same would apply to more conservative points of view. And as you know, the academy is criticized often for not being very tolerant and accepting of 
so-called conservative points of view. I think that's a real problem. So you made you made the point that the First Amendment doesn't prohibit hate speech. Does a, any kind of prohibited prohibition on hate speech have a legal standing? Not unless it falls into one of the traditional categories that's not protected by the First Amendment. Like, all right, yelling fire in a theater. That, that, that gets more conduct-like and, and has tangible, uh, well, actions to generate more direct harm. I'm not trying to deny that hate speech can harm the people who hear it. Uh, you know, being a white, older male, I don't get much of that. Uh, never have. That's part of my privilege, right? I just, just that, that hasn't happened to me. Uh, but, <laughs> but the worst that's happened to me is kind of funny. Uh, a, a, a black driver once uh, thought that I had, I don't know, cut him off or something, and, and we stopped at a, at a stoplight together. He rolled down his window and said, you honky cracker, and then he took off. And I had my two little girls in the back seat, and one of my daughters said, "Daddy, what's a honky?" <laughs> but that, if that, yeah, that's nothing. But so, yeah, that. If I could say that too. That one of the things I think come across this year, working on free speech and civil discourse through the whole year, in some ways is how. And I mean, I say this of myself, not just of everyone else, but how really little. It is understood that hate speech uh, that you know is uh, that um, you cannot prohibit hate speech. It's just not understood. Um, and conversely, free speech I think is just you know it, it, there's a it, it exists at the level of slogan, but there's a lot of kind of information I think that we could share to help people understand what that is here on campus. So any other questions, comments? Yes. Our closing closing question. Um, I was wondering about specific prohibitions. For instance, if, say, someone wanted to create a neo-Nazi group on campus, that is would not be general at all. That's a very specific thing. Could the school explicitly say we do not like allow speech? Um, let, let, I mean, like neo-Nazis would be an example. Like, say, we do not allow speech that promotes like. Um, Adolf Hitler, because one of your one of the problems is that these prohibitions are so general. So, for something that's clearly objectionable and very specific, could could the university explicitly prohibit that? No. Now they might not give them stu recognized student group status. That that that's probably a different issue in terms of what kinds of groups the university has to recognize and then support, right? Uh, but that's different than if a group of students want to express themselves about with you know, neo-Nazi and anti-Jew discussion. I'm afraid that's that's as protected as you know, anti-Israel or anti-Palestine or anti-whatever. That kind of speech, I think, again, content neutrality, I think, would have to control it. Now, if they start again threatening, creating violence, inciting violence, that's a whole different matter. Uh, but that would, this is kind of what, this, this is the Skokie case, right, where the neo-Nazis wanted to march in a largely Jewish part of the suburb of Chicago. And the courts had to say, yeah, they can do that. 
even though it's very hateful to those people and probably disgusting to have to have to listen to that. That's what the First Amendment protects. Well, thank you all very much for coming. Yes, thank you so much.